Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome more Neville Thomas, speaker, trainer, and author of the fabulous Work Without Walls. We're going to discuss today attention management, how to manage email, the blurring lines between business and personal lives, broken vacations, the future workplace, and lots, lots more. Maura, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Aidan. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Great to have you on the show. It's a great book. I took a great deal out of it. A lot of personal stuff as well, where you notice that your attention is wandering. You know, I saw recently on CNN, there was an article that said Amazon Prime probably cost about 10 billion on wasted productivity because three quarters of the members said they would work, they would check out the deals from work. And it's just one of yeah. the many symptoms of the world we, we live in today. It is. Everybody thinks that they can do multiple things at once, like shop on Amazon and still work. Before we actually go into that, it'd be great just to get a, an idea of your own background more and, and you know how you got to these books and what your modus operandi is. Sure, absolutely. I have been working in the productivity industry um, for almost my whole professional career. My uh, Almost my first job out of college was for a company that sold um, paper-based planners and training to go along with the with the planners. And so I learned a lot about productivity right right out of the gate. And then I worked there for almost a decade and my last role there was as director of marketing where it was my responsibility to um to write about um what we did and why it was important and also how it was different from what else was being um sold and taught in the field of productivity and time management. And so it was my job to attend trainings and read books and see speakers and pretty much learn everything I could learn about um, about the, the industry. And so I had that job for three years um, as director of marketing, where I was just studying, studying, studying all, uh, all of the the systems and the products and the methodologies that were out there in the world. So then when I left and started my business, I was able to take the best from what I had learned and roll it into the methodology that I teach now, which I call the empowered productivity system. And then I began testing it and refining it. And I started my business 15 years ago. And so um, it's pretty well tested now. I've trained thousands of probably tens of thousands of people in hundreds of organizations and Certainly, it, it adapts to the changing world, but um, but I I'm very confident that what I teach is applicable because um, because of how it came about. That experience of of helping clients be more productive in this move towards a knowledge industry is so important because you, you know you mentioned in the book that an office worker is interrupted every eleven minutes. And then after that, it takes 23 minutes to get back in the zone to where you were again. And when you, when you consider, when we all do, if we all look at ourselves in the mirror, we, we've lost our focus and this world of single tasking has become an old, an old idea where you advocate for getting back to that world. I do. And, you know, the, the research shows exactly the statistics that you mentioned. Gloria Marks um, research 
shows that were interrupted every 11 minutes and it takes 23 minutes to get back to what we were doing. But in my experience, what I see people doing when they work is that they're, they have their email open and, and the messages coming in. And most people get a messages anywhere from 30 seconds to 120 seconds. And many people, in fact, have two computer monitors with their email on one screen and their, you know, work on the other screen. And an email comes in somewhere between every 30 to 120 seconds. And so people have their eyes on their work. But if you watch them, what you see is that every time that new message comes in, their eyes dart over to the email. What's that? Who's that from? I'll get back to that later. And sometimes they stop and deal with the email and sometimes they don't. But either way, they're still interrupted. You talk about the idea of skim and skip culture. And I thought that was really interesting because you, you talk about us, we're actually training ourselves to have less attention. Yes, because we're so distracted by something um, all the time, like when we get an email every 30 to 120 seconds, we're so used to the distraction that it, those interruptions just chip away at our attention span. And every time I'm in a room full of people and I say, how many people feel like your attention span is shorter than it used to be? Every single hand goes up. And, you know, I ask them, what do you think that is from? And a lot of people say, oh, well, it's probably age or something like that. But the truth is we have become so distracted that that we get accustomed and acclimated to the distraction. And so it continues to just chip away at our attention span and our ability to concentrate until that gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And in the absence of constant distraction, we get bored and we actually seek out a distraction. So it becomes a vicious cycle. You were saying that in a typical work day, some of your clients would experience 45% of their day in meetings and then three hours, 20 minutes of email every single day. Like when you think of the lost productivity, because we don't need to answer those emails. And, and what I love about what you did in the book is you recognize the problem. Like we, we all know email's a problem, but then you give some personal solutions and then an organizational approach to some of the solutions. Could we look at some of those solutions for email, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing about email is that it, for the most part, I mean, everybody gets junk and everybody gets spam and everybody gets marketing and we have to do our best to um, to filter our messages so that, you know, if there are newsletters and, and industry specific things that you need to read that you can, that you can get those, but really what you want to come in, you know, what you want to land in your inbox on any given day is actual is work, right? It's real messages from real people that you need to deal with. And what I find is that um, in my experience, the average professional gets about 100 real messages a day. And those 100 messages are work. They're from colleagues or they're from clients or they're from vendors. And they're actual messages that they have to deal with. So, so what I find is that uh, about 100 messages a day and each email takes, on average, about two minutes just to figure out, you know, what, what is this and why am I getting it and what do I need to do about it? And so if you get 100 messages at two minutes per message, that's about, that's 200 minutes a day. That's about three hours and 20 minutes of work <laughs> every day that just happens to have come to you through your email inbox, but it's work. I mean, back in the old days, it used to be, you know, 
papers in your desk inbox, right? On the little box that sat on top of your desk, people would drop papers in it. And that was work too. And now the, the digital equivalent of that is, is email, but it's still work. And so if you think about the average professional has about three hours and 20 minutes of work waiting for them in their email. And yet, as you mentioned, most people's um, idea of dealing with their email is skim and skip, which means I'm just going to go scrolling through my inbox looking for anything that is very fast that I can dispatch quickly or anything that is um, urgent that I have to deal with right now. And anything else, I'll get back to that later. But the problem is that later never comes, right? And so then we end up with these um, tens or hundreds or thousands of messages in in our email inbox that represents work that we need to deal with. And, you know, often those things fall through the cracks or hopefully somebody else deals with them, but usually there are consequences. And some people will put, you know, a flag on their email or they'll mark it as unread. But really all that tells you is I know that there's something. <laughs> Here's a message yeah. that there's something. Something I'm supposed to do with that, and it's just really—it's just enough to stress you out. It's something yeah. that I have to deal with, and then you—and then you multiply that by the ten or twenty or fifty or a hundred or two hundred messages that have flags on them, and no wonder the average worker is feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Yeah, because yeah. that brings with it this kind of stress, doesn't it? Of I have all this stuff there that it's like a buzzing fridge in the background that you know is there and it's bugging you. And therefore you, you don't really get to the idea of mindfulness that you need to in the knowledge economy. So you, you'd mentioned this and I, I thought I had never really seen this connection before that Peter Drucker talked about this years ago, way ahead of his time. He said, we are going to move towards this knowledge economy. And in that knowledge economy, the workers productivity, is the most important thing because you need to both get the most out of people's deep work, but also create the atmosphere for that to happen. And moving on from email, one of the things you talk about, and I use an Eisenhower matrix every day to kind of prioritize what I'm doing, but but mm -hmm. that doesn't take care of the shift that's happened in the world from time management to attention management. And I'd love to tell our audience about that. Yeah. The more I study um, this, you know, ability to bring our best uh, to our work every day and, and to be productive and and, uh, and and the way I like to phrase it is to live a life of choice, um, the more I study these things, the more I have become convinced that really the secret is is not about time. It's about attention because even if you devote your time to something, right? And time management says, if it's really important, put it on your calendar, right? Time block so that you'll really get it done. Well, let's say that you put something on your calendar, you're going to do, um, you know, say a proposal to a client and you want to do that at 9 a.m. And so you put it on your calendar at 9 a.m. and then 9 a.m. rolls around and you say, oh, right, the proposal and you pull it up and you start to think about the client, but then there's that email that comes in. Let me just check that. Who's that from? Okay, no, I can wait. Okay, now where was I? Back to this client proposal. Okay, oh, wait, the phone's ringing. Let me just grab that. Okay, now where was I? Back to that client proposal. And if the time that you set aside on your calendar to do that, that proposal, if that time goes by with you switching your attention every few seconds or every few minutes, 
It doesn't change the fact that the time will pass. But at the end of that time, you will have a much different experience than the one that you intended if during that time you don't also devote your attention. So to me, what's much more important today than time management is attention management. Because if your attention is not on the task at hand, then how the time passes doesn't really matter. Yeah, it reminds me of of the gym, right? So you can go to the gym and you see this all the time. see people going to the gym, but it's about their intent when they're, or as you say, their attention to what they're doing. And obviously the intensity you work with at, and, and therefore you're going to get much better results. And I, I always see that correlation between FaceTime in the office versus actually intent time or intent, attention time. Because you talk about this, that I think this is one of the key messages I, I took is that we, we're training ourselves to be, multitaskers but by being multitaskers we're actually decreasing our uh, capability at our job which our job are, are going to increasingly become knowledge worker jobs where our mind and our deep focus is is the most important thing and you talk a lot about some personal things we can do to limit lack of attention but also to increase our focus yes so um There are primarily three ways that I teach people um, better attention management, three ways to control your attention. The three things to think about in terms of attention management are you have to control your environment, right? If you have people, if you have a lot of noise around you, if you have people interrupting you all day, if, you know, if there's always somebody walking by, you know, dropping in on you, wanting to chat, um, if the office is really loud, if you're overhearing everyone else's conversations, all of that is super distracting. And so even for people who work in a very busy open office, there are, we all do have, I think, a lot more control over our environment than we exert sometimes. For example, you could give your coworkers a signal um, that says that you would prefer not to be disturbed because even if somebody's says, hey, do you have a minute, that now you're already interrupted, right? That, that in itself is the distraction. So you want to, not only do you want to prevent them from talking to you, but you want to prevent them from even asking you if it's okay to talk to you. And so um, putting up a sign or putting on headphones or, um, you know, there's even Amazon has some, uh, you know, uh, little red light, green light, uh, stoplights that you can put on your desk. And there's all kinds of little um, things you could buy, but also, you know, maybe just red, yellow, green construction paper or just a simple sign that says, please do not disturb. There are all kinds of ways that we can control our environment. If the environment is loud, noise canceling headphones, maybe you can pick up and go into a quiet conference room or maybe you could work from home on a day that you really need to have, you know, head down deep work going on. So we all feel at times like we are victims of our environment, but the truth is we have a lot more control. Um, We just don't exert it often. So controlling your environment is the first thing. The second thing is controlling your technology, because if you don't control your technology, then virtually anyone in the world can interrupt you at any time. We have all these apps that have push notifications that we allow. Um, we, and those, those apps are designed to steal your attention. I mean, that is the purpose of push notifications is 
is to is to draw you back into interaction with the technology. The job of the internet is to keep you on the internet. So we have to recognize that technology is being developed to manipulate our, with the sole purpose of manipulating our behavior. And so the only, our only defense against that is to be able to control our technology. And of course we can, right? We can shut it off. We can put it on silent, not vibrate. We can put it on do not disturb. We can put it on airplane mode. We can flip it face down. You know, we can turn off all the indicators that we have so that, um, so that none of those things distract us, but we just don't. Um, so controlling your technology is the second piece. And then the third piece is controlling your own behavior, which is often the hardest part because we're so used to these distractions. In the absence of those distractions, as I mentioned, we we find that we're bored and we start to seek out the distraction. And so because technology and um, and other people are are interrupting us all the time it's chipping away at our attention span so the antidote to that is to begin to is to recognize it so that you can begin to build up your attention span because the truth is focus or the ability to control your attention is is like a, is it like any other skill the more you practice it the better you get at it but our day-to-day behavior in fact actually undermines our ability to focus. And so we need to take control and reverse that. So those are the three steps for attention management. And from an organizational point of view, there's some steps that the organization can put in place. Yes. So open office floor plans are becoming very uh, common. And I understand it, it, is, uh, it costs less in, in real estate expenses to have an open office, and that's important. The bottom line is always important. We have to keep costs in mind. However, I think what the problem is is often the implications of that open floor plan are not considered, and the studies are showing that noise and um, lack of privacy and all of the other components that go into an open office floor plan are actually horrible for our for our productivity, horrible for our focus and our ability to get our best work done. And so if a company does have an open office floor plan, it is useful to recognize that people will need quiet time and maybe only sometimes, but maybe, I mean, depending on the nature of the work that gets done, maybe a lot of the time. So I have seen offices where the default is quiet. If you need to, if you need to talk, if you need to take a phone call, if you're doing anything noisy, then you need to step away from the main office area um, to do those things. So you need to have have spaces for that. And then even the reverse is true. If the default in your office is that everybody's talking and it's pretty loud and noisy, then you have to also have other have places where people can step away to do intense work where they need quiet time. So thinking about um, you know the, the both the collaborative work, which is often the focus of an open office floor plan, but also the individual deep focus work, with, you know, considering that in a floor design is important. And for those companies that have already implemented an open office floor plan, there's a lot that can be done. Um, a lot of companies I see have glass walls, 
which means that everybody can see everybody and then people feel like they lose um, privacy. So maybe adding some frost, you know, some spray frost or some films to the glass so that you can sort of, you know, see if somebody's in a room, but you can't really see everything. Um, that can help with privacy. It's important to note that um, that hard surfaces actually amplify sound where softer furnishings and plants can absorb sound. So thinking about uh, thinking about that in a floor design, so maybe some just some some rugs and some plants would help the noise level. Maybe a company could um, pipe in some white noise overhead um, or some instrumental music to um, you know to bring the sound down a little bit or at least to, to muffle the most distracting sounds. So yeah, there there are a lot of things that people could do, but it's really I think what's missing is that focus on the need to have quiet, undistracted time where people can do that deep work. Yeah, and it's it's like so many things where you know people think they're they're doing a they're mid strategy when they're actually jumping to tactics, and this is the same thing that. People go, you know, let's put in an open office and let's put down, throw a few bean bags on the floor, and all of a sudden innovation mm-hmm. will pick up. When the evidence as well to show of open offices that it does, that if it aids innovation or not is very very scant research to show that it does. It's true. I I, I scoured the research, and most of the academic studies do say that um, an open floor plan, when it's when it's loud and distracting, is actually awful for productivity. I only found one study that didn't have the same finding, and that study was done by an office furniture manufacturer. It wasn't an <laughs> academic study. So, okay. Uh, so, you know. Bias then. So that, that brings us nicely to the next one, which is location of work, because we're seeing a rise in, in co-working spaces. We're seeing a massive rise in telecommuting and the trust in employees to work from home. What, what's your take on that whole shift towards telecommuting? Yeah, I mean, the truth is that most people are working um, are working a lot longer hours because of smartphones, right? Because we, we have these devices, work is very portable, and so there's so many professionals now that really are working all the time. They're checking their emails at night. Uh, on the weekends, and that's primarily the kind of work that people are doing. They're checking your, their emails, but that's work. And so um, if people are working longer hours and on the weekends, then it's ridiculous to think that they'll goof off just because you can't see them sitting at their desk. FaceTime in the office is a very um, outdated and old-fashioned measure of productivity. And it, it makes it difficult because uh, productivity of knowledge workers is very hard to measure because the outputs are not tangible. Like the outputs are um, ideas and communication and decisions. And so in manufacturing and industrial type work, it's very, uh, it's a lot easier to measure productivity because if you produce 100 widgets today and 200 widgets tomorrow, then obviously your productivity has increased. But with a knowledge worker, if somebody, uh, like a salesperson, for example, creates, you know, or sends out five proposals this week and 10 proposals next week, but none of them close any business, 
are they more productive? <laughs> and 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 I I also think that the mental state of of a, of an employee must go into the measurement of their productivity because if you have an employee who is meeting all their quotas and who is hitting things out of the park um, in terms of their you know their production or their revenue numbers or whatever it is that you measure them on those tangible things that you measure them on but that employee also hates his job <laughs> then then how productive is he really i mean what how, how is that going to affect his productivity because very likely he's got one foot out the door or he's not engaged at work and so his output is not his outcomes aren't what they could be or um or he's going to leave and then and then where will productivity be you'll be back at square one having to hire and train for that same position so it's difficult to measure productivity yeah. of knowledge workers. And and you see, like, if somebody does leave like that, they bring exactly that word knowledge with them. And, and it's, a, it's a lot of it, like you say, is so intangible. And, and it's something I always think with people in innovation roles in particular, and, and even stuff when you go down to, like, web development, the u- user experience designers, those type of people, their work is seen as so intangible from the old school or the old way of doing business because they, they're new skills and they're absolutely required, but they're often seen as a luxury rather than a necessity. Absolutely, which is is really kind of ridiculous when you stop to consider, but that's the problem is that, you know, this 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 shift to knowledge work has been sort of insidious. And I, I I think that a lot of business owners, especially smaller business owners, um, and by small I mean you know a hundred employees, five hundred employees, something like that. It it's um it, it it's an important shift. And if you don't stop and shine a light on it and say how have things changed and you know what does that mean about the way our company operates, then I think you really lose an opportunity. Yeah, and and that that's another important thing. I mean, to make all these changes, because you talk about, for example, email. So say email. If you get 90% of your staff to stop emailing after hours, don't send those emails. Yeah, it might suit you to be clearing some emails then or you're focused on your emails, but use some of the plethora of tools, which you, you list fantastically in the book, by the way, and I highly recommend that part of it as well where you list all the tools that help with every different aspect and every different problem you identify in the book. But you talk about using a tool like, say, Boomerang, where you arrange to send that email at 9 a.m. the next day because I often feel that myself. And sometimes I think, oh, a client's going to be delighted I'm emailing them. And then I go, actually, I I need to understand the client side because maybe the client's kind of going, I don't want to receive an email from you after hours because yeah, I know you're committed to me and all that, but you're dragging me in and you're dragging me out of my zone. I may want to be with my family, etc. But but that you talk about if there's poison in the well, everybody gets affected that you need to stamp it out at every level. But it almost always needs to start with the top, the CEO, the shadow of the leader throughout the company. Yeah, I do want to distinguish, though, when you talk about it depends on your relationship, right? If you if you are emailing a client 
then there's really no sort of power relationship there. If the client wants to be, because there's, there's the, the, the sending of the email and the receiving of the email, right? So, so when I say yeah. don't be sending emails late at night, there's two sides to that equation. Number one, it means you're working at night and you shouldn't be. <laughs> if, you know, if you, um, if you work traditional hours, right? It, so for somebody who works a, a typical day, you know, eight to five or whatever, if you have put in a whole day at the office, then yeah, then yes, my suggestion is don't be emailing at night, not only because the people who receive it might feel like they need to be working if you are, but also because you you want to get the same benefits of having that downtime as everybody else. But if you are, it's much more important when there is a hierarchical relationship. If the boss the CEO of the company, the leadership team of the company is sending emails at night, then it is going to put a burden on on the employees to feel like, geez, the boss is working. So I want them to know that, you know, that I'm dedicated and I'm committed. And if they're working, then I'm working. And so now I am going to feel an obligation um, for to be checking my email. And so that is especially insidious. Number one, the boss isn't getting the downtime that they need. But number two, it's creating this expectation inside the company, even if they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I work at night, but I don't expect you to work at night. Somebody, yeah. you know, everybody's looking for an, an edge in their career. And that's, you know, the whole do as I say, not as I do thing is really not going to work. If you have a relationship that is not hierarchical, um, then I think it is it is a little bit less important. You know, if you're sending an email to your client, if you're an independent person, independent contractor, and you're sending an email to a client, it doesn't necessarily put a burden on the client. They still have all of the discretion that they need to decide whether or not they're going to be working at night, but you might still not be getting the downtime that you need. Yeah, and that's so true that, and, and to kind of bring it all together then, like you took, the boss doesn't see the effect that might have on a home. So you may be with your partner, you may be with your kids, whatever, and you feel the need to go and do this and respond to an email. And it pulls you out of the moment you may have been in. And also it may have distracted, you might be putting your kids to bed or whatever, and it pulls you out of that moment. And those moments we often, because we live in this multitasking world, we don't even appreciate as much as we should. And you talk about some of the personal things we can do and also uh, from an organizational level, like for example, putting in pods that you can do meditation in or music zones, et cetera, et cetera. Could, could we touch on some of those? Because we, we kind of passed over the the personal things we can control. Sure, absolutely. You're exactly right that if your attention is not in the moment that you're having, then then you'll miss it, whatever it may be. And it's true. I find I have a lot of clients tell me that they don't they don't really intend to work at night, but they're so used to checking their email all day long that they can't just shut that off when they go home. And so they're just, you know, sitting with their family either out at dinner or in front of the television, and they're just sort of mindlessly tapping on their icons on their phone and they 
find themselves hitting that email icon and, oh, there's an email from the boss and, oh, what does he need? And, oh, geez, let me run upstairs to my laptop and, 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 and get that. And so now you didn't really intend to work. You just thought, well, let me just, you know, see if anything's going on. But now your head, either you're physically out of the moment because you have to actually step out to, to do the work, or maybe you don't have to physically leave, but your head's in it. I wonder why you asked me that question. I wonder what's going on. Is there a problem? I wonder if I'm in trouble. Is that bad news? Right? So your head just starts to muse on all of these things. And so you're not, you might be physically present, but you're not mentally present. And people know when you're not there with them, you know, when you're not paying attention to them, especially children, you're super tuned into that. So it can really have damaged your um, relationships. And so that's why I think that's really, to me, that's why I call it living a life of choice because the ultimate problem, I mean, yes, we all want to be more productive and all of that kind of stuff, but, but really if you're, Attention determines the experiences that you have in your life. If you are if you are in a moment, but you know your head is really inside in your device, you might be physically present in the moment, but you're not really experiencing the moment. Your attention determines the experiences that you have, and really, when you look back on your life, it's just a string of the experiences that you've had. So your attention determines your experiences, and your experiences determine your life. And so if you can't control your attention, then really you're not ultimately in control of your life. And to me, that's, that's the tragedy. That's, uh, you know, that's the biggest problem. And so we really need to reverse the detrimental effects that multitasking has and, and, and reverse that chipping away at our attention span so that we can um, be present um, meditation certainly is the ultimate form of control over your attention, but it doesn't even have to be, you know, really true strict meditation or, or prayer. Or it, it, it could just be quiet time, you know, quiet time when you're not um, dealing with all of these external distractions, when you're not allowing all of these external distractions, introducing more quiet moments into your life can help to to reverse that that constantly distracted um, feeling. And and we all have control over that. No matter how demanding a job is, no matter how frantic it is, there are steps that we can take individually to exert some control. And I think we just sort of forget that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, and I'm sure so many of our listeners are kind of reflecting on where they do this themselves because we, we have trained ourselves and, and I do, you know, we had Nir Eyal on the show before and Nir told us about habit forming products and how they're actually built, uh, including the, mm -hmm. the, the formula for that. And we do that to ourselves all the time where we're looking for this reward. And I almost feel probably from his framework, understanding email now that, you know, you're, you're scrolling down that page. And you're, it's almost like an, it's like a, it's like rolling the lottery wheel. <laughs> you know, you're kind of going, yeah. I wonder what will happen. And, and you're, you're hoping something will happen. And mm -hmm. you probably, part of you is hoping it's not going to be something serious or whatever, but you're kind of going, I'm hoping something happens because, and, and you might be actually watching a, a movie now, you know, and, and we've mm -hmm. added this in or, or sitting there with your kid and, you know, instead of 
whatever, watching Peppa Pig with your child and being totally in the moment with them and they're laughing, they kind of turn around to you and try to share a laugh and all of a sudden you're checking your email. And it, like I see those kind of moments and I've done them, it, it, they're just like a dagger through your heart. And you're going, well, I did that to myself. No one else is doing that to me. Um, so I, I like that. And it's w- one of the big things I, I want. I wanted to share your work with was, was that piece as well. Uh, one of the last things to touch on, and it's in the same vein, is the idea of broken vacations. Because not only have we left left work invade our private time in the evenings, but but now so many ho- holidays are kind of tarnished by email and by pop up notifications and even phone calls on on occasion. Absolutely. Um... I think there is a part in all of us that likes to think that we are indispensable and that we are the only ones who can do our job and that everything will come to a grinding halt if we leave. And there's, you know, there's a piece of that that feels good, but then you have to ask yourself at what cost. And so when people work on vacation, you know, I've had so many people tell me, oh, I really can enjoy my vacation a lot more if I just spend the first hour every morning just checking in at the office to make sure everything's fine. Well, it it would be lovely if your brain were truly that obedient, where you could say to yourself, I will have no further thoughts of work for the next 23 hours. I will only think about leisure things. <laughs> but it simply doesn't work that way. And so if you check in with work every morning while you're on vacation, then your brain is going to be still um, involved in your work for perhaps the entire rest of the day or at least some part of your brain. It takes us a while to really truly unplug and disconnect, but the truth is you can't get a fresh perspective on something that you never step away from. And so checking in with the office every day means you're really not disconnecting, which means you're really not getting the benefits of vacation, which are a renewed motivation and a renewed inspiration and a, and a, and a replenish of your, your creativity um, and your, your inspiration. And so working while you're on vacation is really one of the worst things that you could do. And this is another place where leaders, I think, inadvertently um, impede their employees' ability to be productive because we, Companies pay vacation, and they really could get benefits of that vacation if the employee really did unplug and really did come back recharged and refreshed. Then that that paid vacation is really money well spent. But because most people don't, then they, they don't get inspired, and they don't get refreshed, and they don't have that renewed creativity. And so, um, so then the money that is spent on a paid vacation is, really not wasted or at least not maximized. Um, and, 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 you know, so that's the, the, the detriment to the company, but certainly to the employee as well, because they don't get the benefits. And um, so it, it's very difficult to just, to just try to compartmentalize like that. And, you know, checking email from the beach, it's still working. <laughs> Yeah, because it, it drags your mind back in, doesn't it? It, it actually just drags Absolutely. it in. And, and even if it's just a, a trigger word or a keyword or, or just a reminder of a, a stressful project or a t- deadline that you have when you get back, 
it just drags you into that train of mind. But also, it causes anxiety and stress to your to your loved ones and your relationships and your partners around you because they see you doing this and they're going, well, he's, he, he or she's not fully present with me. And that causes a whole new thing. And then that actually affects work at the end of the day as well. That That's why I just see this cycle over and over again. One of the things, Maura, we, we kind of brushed over a little and I'd love to share is the, the location of work. So telecommuting, because you see this as as a huge, it's like a tidal wave that's coming, the idea of telecommuting and, mm-hmm. and all, what that does for an organization and a freeze up, obviously, it can be a win-win. You say 79% of people want this when surveyed. So mm-hmm. it'd be great to touch on that because I think this is something that, a lot of employers are are not addressing that's coming down the line. Yeah, I, it, it goes back to what we were talking about that um, that there's outdated ideas of how we measure productivity, and one of the old ones is FaceTime in the office. Well, you know, if they're here and they're sitting at their desk, obviously they are working. When in fact. Um, I can tell you anecdotally, most of my clients tell me that they're much more productive when they're not in the office because in the office is where all of the distractions are. And um, like I said, people work on the weekends, on vacation, in the evenings. It's ridiculous to think that they will slack off just because they're not sitting at their desk in the office. So I absolutely think that telecommuting has many, many benefits for organizations. Um, There are some aspects that need to be considered because a remote workforce can also impede um, trust and camaraderie and, uh, you know, collegiality and those types of things. But there are ways to, to mitigate that. I think that the benefits of telecommuting far outweigh the disadvantages. Yeah, and, and one of the examples you give, and I hadn't heard of it before, was the American Express, where where you work from depends on what you do. And they talk about the hub, club, or home rules that actually go with your job spec. So if you apply for a job, it's marked hub, club, or home. So you know where you'll be working and what's expected of you before you even take the job. Yeah, I think it's really important to consider that when, when implementing telecommuting policies, and I think like so many other things, company practices develop over time without intention. And so, you know, one person asks if they can work at home, and so so they are allowed to, and then somebody else wants to, and then and it, and then it, it just sort of happens over time where you've got some proportion of the workforce who is no longer in the office, but you really never stop to consider kind of the the big picture. And that's what I love about the American Express program. One of the things that needs to be considered when you evaluate, can this person work from home? It's it's really less about, you know, do we trust them and will they slack off? And it's more about what is the nature of their work? And is the majority of the work that they do collaborative? And if so, having them work from home might, might be, might, might make it much harder for them. But if the nature, you know, the majority of what they do, if the nature of of that is more um, independent and, you know, focus work, then probably having them work at home is going to be a great solution because they can get a lot more done where they're undisturbed. So 
it's a it's a, the, the nature of the work itself is an important consideration when when implementing um, telecommuting policies. And I also just want to make a distinction that I think is really important um, that I outline in the book that that in the it's hard to evaluate the literature and the articles in the business media sometimes because the the terms telecommuting and remote work are used interchangeably. But I think those are two distinct things. To me, telecommuting is work done outside the office that replaces in-office work time. So if every Tuesday from 8 to 5, instead of coming into the office, you work at home, that's part-time telecommuting. Remote work is work that's done in addition to a full day in the office. So if you work in the office all day and then you come home and you have dinner with your family, and you put your kids to bed and at nine o'clock at night, you jump back on the computer, that's remote work. You know, there's a lot of literature saying that, oh, you know, telecommuting is horrible because it blurs those lines between business and personal and people never have time off. I think what they're talking about is actually remote work, not telecommuting. So I think it's important to distinction, to distinguish between the two. When you look at the book and you kind of sum it up and you do a great job at the end of every chapter, you kind of give key takeaways that are also tweetable which is a really nice touch. And then you list all the, the productivity tools. So th there's a lot we can do ourselves individually. There's a lot we can claim back and, and using some of the hacks that you have in this and just actually using common sense and having a bit of resistance to the addiction to distraction, if you will. You know, you call this out in the book and it's so true with anything in innovation or, or change management or disruption. It all comes from the chief productivity officer, which is the CEO of the company. It's it's there that that the organizational change needs to happen. But in the meantime, while that's happening, we can do so much that's all outlined in the book and you do a great job of that. Thanks very much. Yeah, I I do think that the you know the the culture of the organization is set at the top. And so if the leader doesn't believe in um you know, in these concepts, in the idea of uninterrupted focus time and and uh, downtime to recharge and those types of things, then it's never going to take hold at the organization. In the larger companies, the CEO perhaps doesn't need to be in charge of the day-to-day -day implementation, but they still need to be on board with the ideas. And in the smaller companies, absolutely, um, the CEO needs to be the chief productivity officer. This work and, you know, what you outline in the book and the work you do through your training is, is actually an investment because it frees up more productivity. It makes employees more happy and therefore they actually get more done. So it's a kind of a whole cycle. So I really highly recommend people. How can they reach you more if people want to get in touch? Absolutely. They can find me at marathomas.com and uh, they can find the books Work Without Walls and Personal Productivity Secrets, anywhere books are sold. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, speaker, trainer, and author of Work Without Walls and the Personal Productivity Secrets. Maura Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aiden.